Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the trial of Derek Chauvin itself, before moving on to various responses, a wide-angle lens on some of the forces at play in policing, and the work still to be done. Clips today are from The Brian Lehrer Show, Criminal Injustice, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, Progressive Faith Sermons, The United States of Anxiety, and The Takeaway. Yesterday at this time, we were breaking down the closing arguments and the legal considerations for the jury in the trial of defendant Derek Chauvin. This morning, the way we describe the former police officer is officially different. He is convicted murderer Derek Chauvin, according to the judge. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, defendant. Verdict, count one. Court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Judge Peter Cahill, reading the jury's verdict yesterday, on the most serious count, second-degree murder, in case you hadn't heard it from his own lips and wanted to hear it from his own lips, This is not a hoax. So there was the murder of George Floyd accountability trial. Now Congress will debate the George Floyd Accountability Act. States and local police departments are having different conversations too than a year ago before the number, before the murder, sorry, they're having different conversations than a year ago before the murder of George Floyd. So can the end of jury deliberations in the one case be the beginning of something more systemic? Here's Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison speaking yesterday after the verdict. The work of our generation is to put unaccountable law enforcement behind us. It's time to transfer the relationship, transform the relationship between community and the people who are sworn uh, to protect them from one that is mistrustful, suspicious, and in some cases terrifying, into one that is empathetic, compassionate, and affirming. With that, benef- with that will benefit everyone, including police officers who deserve to serve in a profession that is honored in departments where they don't have to worry about colleagues who don't follow the rules. And Ellison went even further than that, further than the work of this generation being to hold police merely accountable. The work of our generation is to put an end to the vestiges of Jim Crow and the centuries of trauma and finally put an end to racism. We can end it. It doesn't have to be with us into the future if we decide now to have true liberty and justice for all. The work of our generation is to say goodbye to old practices that don't serve us anymore and to put them all behind us. One conviction, even one like this one that creates even one like this one can create a powerful new opening to shed old practices and reset relationships. What was that trial like? Well, here are a couple of takes on it from my point of view. Number one, as I said it already, it was very well tried by the prosecution. They had that video, of course, as their centerpiece 
of evidence. Um, and it's extremely powerful. As we all know, it was powerful enough to ignite a nationwide, really worldwide movement demanding changes in how police act, how they use force, uh, and many, many other things. But the, the the good thing about the prosecution's case was that they did not rest on that alone. They knew that the only real cards the defense would have to play would be whether or not uh, the jury would agree that the uh, death was caused by Officer Chauvin. Now, that may seem like a ridiculous question to you, given that we've all seen the video, what else could have caused it? But we knew that the medical evidence in the case included at least two important things. Number one, uh, evidence of some kind of heart disease that Mr. Floyd had. And number two, uh, evidence that he may have ingested some illegal substances. And therefore, the prosecution was right to anticipate that uh, those arguments would be made, and they countered them very well with medical experts who said, nope, he died of asphyxia, that meaning you know, suffocation, basically, from having a knee on his neck and the weight of a man on it. Uh, it was not heart disease. It was not other substances um, uh, and, and other suggestions like that. So they made sure that in their own case, they cross those T's, dot those I's, and close those doors. They were also able to do a wonderful job, I thought, persuasively by bringing in live witnesses who were there. That wasn't strictly necessary, but they brought in the young lady who made the video. They brought in other people who were standing there. They brought in the clerk who had called the police at the insistence of his boss when he'd been passed a counterfeit $20 bill. Why did they do all this? They wanted to humanize the situation overall to show its grave impact on everybody. And then they had a chance, of course, to humanize George Floyd himself through other civilian witnesses. He did this um, with his, uh, uh, his current romantic partner and with others. That's all allowed under Minnesota law, and they were right to do that. It really made for a very strong case. And they pulled all this together in the end in a closing argument in which they said, the police are not on trial here. Chauvin is on trial trial here. And that was crucial uh, in the sense that it told jurors, uh, a juror might be wavering, thinking, I don't want to blame the police for everything that goes wrong. Well, it's not about the police. It's about Derek Chauvin. And you know that lots of other people outside that courtroom were saying, no, this is about the police as an institution or the Minneapolis police as an institution. And the prosecution was saying, nope, uh-uh. Not true. It's about this man on this day doing this thing. And the result was that they had no jurors try to hang the jury. Everybody had enough evidence to go forward. On the defense side, you know, the defense attorneys often just have to play the cards they are dealt. And that is that was the case here. They could not argue, crucially, as they do in so many of these police death 
cases that the officer was in fear for his life, uh, that it was a split-second decision. Those things usually play a big, big role in police shooting and otherwise killing cases, but they just didn't apply here. Right. You know, when you've got um, Officer Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, looking for forever, you know, for all intents and purposes, like he's, you know, waiting in line at Walgreens or something, you can't argue that he looks like his life is in danger or that he thought something was going to happen to him. None of those things applied. So they were left with the very weak cards of something else caused the death. Now, that's not nothing. I want everybody to understand. In every homicide case, a homicide is what we call a result crime. You have to prove that there is a connection between the actions of the defendant and the result. In this case, the death of Mr. Floyd. That is crucial in every homicide case. So they were attempting to show that something else interfered with that or actually caused it and you could not lay blame with Mr. Chauvin. It's just that their evidence was not strong enough and it was well countered by the prosecution. So where are we now? Where does all of this leave us? Um, I think, you know, there's a tendency at this point to take two different positions. I hear it from the police side that uh, uh, Chauvin was a sort of a bad apple, that, you know, he doesn't represent all police, that he doesn't represent the whole Minneapolis Police Department, or it's over now, we got the bad guy out of here, he got what he deserved. And by the way, Police didn't have any great, you know, things to say about Officer Chauvin uh, outside or inside the trial. And inside the trial, we actually saw police testify against him. His own police chief testifying against him, uh, another very high-ranking officer testifying against him, uh, a former uh, officer, a retired officer testifying against him. And this this had two important purposes. Number one, it cuts off the defense argument that he's just following his training, he's following department policy, all that stuff. They said, no, absolutely not. That's not our training. It's not our policy. But more than that, people want to think that maybe this is the crumbling of the great blue wall of the uh, of the practice of all police officers always backing each other up i think time will tell i think this is a, a a pretty interesting sign but whether this will happen in other cases we'll have to see but there is talk on that side of things uh, we're under siege uh, he just one bad guy this whole thing uh, we got to get past it um, you know, I'm, that is, uh, I think, a sign of what we face. Um, we should not regard the verdict in this case as the end point. It isn't the end point. Um, it is just a way station, a very important one. Don't get me wrong. There had to be justice here in George Floyd's murder for what Derek Chauvin did. Now, the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, said, and I think properly so, justice would require a complete restoration to where things were before, and we can't have that because George Floyd is dead. Uh, But we do get some measure of accountability, and accountability, I believe, is a basic, maybe the most important part of justice, certainly in a murder case where you can't bring the victim back. Um, So it's important 
But this isn't the end of the discussion about what we want policing to look like, how big we want it to be, what do we want police officers, the folks with the handcuffs and the guns to be doing versus maybe social workers or mental health workers or others. We have had and are continuing to have very important, often heated discussions in this country about the issues of race uh, and how that plays into all of policing, but so many other aspects of our society. And those discussions and those changes must continue. And in terms of uh, the sentencing for Chauvin will be in about another in approximately eight weeks. Uh, Your sense of what would be a just uh, sentence for him in this situation? Um, I don't necessarily think that I have a, an assessment of what would feel as a as a just um, sentence in this moment um, as an abolitionist and as someone who really thinks that justice is tied up um, much beyond um, someone being imprisoned. Um, I think it's important to really think about um, justice going forward actually looks like um, defunding and abolishing police. It actually looks like ending militarized occupation um, in cities that are responding to police murders um, and the like, um, and truly uprooting the um, hideous roots of this uh, institution of policing um, and this system that continues to kill black people at the same time that we were, um, you know, exhaling or collectively celebrating the verdict um, of George Floyd's murder. um, We also witnessed another murder of a black teenager, Micaiah Bryant, um, almost at the exact same time. And so really, um, as folks are looking forward to the sentencing, I really want to encourage people to think about justice as much more long term um, and that we set our bar bar a lot higher um, when it comes to calling for justice than um, an adequate sentencing or not. Last year, Candace, in the days after the protests erupted over Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd, the majority of the Minneapolis City Council made a pledge to dismantle the police. This is Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. Around the same time last year after George Floyd's murder, organizers with your group, Black Visions Collective, and others convinced Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry to step outside his home to speak with them. In this clip, we hear you, Candace, questioning the mayor. Go 
So that's Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry telling you, Candace Montgomery, I cannot support the full abolition of the police. Now, that was last June. I want to ask you two things. First of all, the importance of the activists. It's something that the Floyd family repeated over and over last night in thanking activists. And the only reason the first African-American elected uh, to statewide office in Minnesota, Keith Ellison, was in charge of this um, prosecution is because it was taken out of the hands of Hennepin County by the governor as a result of the massive protests. And then I want to ask about the protests very much um, uh, centering around this whole push for defunding the police in Minneapolis, um, including the city council's vote, what, in December to cut $8 million from the $170 million police budget and divert the funds to mental health and violence prevention. Lay out for this, for us, what you have proposed and what you feel has been accomplished and what you think needs to be accomplished. Yeah. So for the several last years, even before 2020, Black Visions and our partner Reclaim the Block and other community organizations have been calling for the divestment from policing and um, in particular, the investment in our communities, um, investment as in investment in real safety, the things that actually create the conditions for safe and healthy and vibrant communities like housing, like healthcare, like quality access to jobs, like um, water that you can drink. Um, things like that, instead of pouring and wasting millions of dollars on policing that we um, know ultimately um, have, one, never been designed to protect and serve um, low-income people, people of color um, ever, um, in fact, have were intentionally created to oppress um, and keep us in our current conditions. Um, that has really been our call um, since 2018. And so in 2020, um, it was really an important and um, immediate call to action to defund the police after the murder of George Floyd. Um, because for me and many of my comrades, that is what justice actually looks like, um, is ending this and making sure that there is never um, another George Floyd or a Dante Wright or Delali Dodd or Makia Bryant or Breonna Taylor um, ever again. Um, that has really been the work that we've been doing. And we um, have been working with the city council to um, push forward that demand. Right now, what that looks like here in Minneapolis is calling for the development of a Department of Public Safety um, and a charter change in our city that will eliminate the requirement for um, the current shape of our police department, the amount of officers, and really the amount of money um, that we waste every year here in Minneapolis on policing and allow us to move those resources um, and create the infrastructure um, at a citywide level for real investment in um, safety alternatives that do not rely on the police solely um, and a public health approach to how we think about safety here in Minneapolis that truly centers care for all of our people. Um, and the city council, along with community organizers, have been working on this initiative this year and excited to bring it to voters in November, um, this proposed charter change. Um, what I'll say about our, our mayor, um, Jacob Fry, is that um, what we've seen um, 
since last summer and to this point is that he's um, completely inadequate to fulfill the responsibilities of his executive role, um, to be clear about the types of decisions that he does or does not have power around, to actually fulfill the promises that he ran on um, when he was being elected, um, and has continuously tried to pit Black communities against each other um, in order to preserve his political standing um, and actually not move forward on investments in community safety like his constituents have been calling for. So I think it's important for people to understand um, the ways that our mayor um, has really blocked um, and gotten in the way of justice. Um, you know, I want to shout out the George Floyd Square organizers who for almost an entire year have been out there every single day, um, out there um, between 8 a.m. Um, till late into the evening, protesting and holding down um, truly sacred space that is providing mutual aid and care to community members, um, that is curating the art of this movement so that people can memorialize and remember this moment, um, and is not letting the city back down from its promises. Um, that has been so crucial. Um, as well as the organizing led by young people during the uprising last summer that um, truly lit um, the fire under the conversation here in Minneapolis, but across the country and across the globe, um, and put pressure in all of the right places that were needed. Um, and then, of course, our demands um, alongside others to not just call for Black Lives Mattering, but for to call for a clear demand um, to change this system um, by defunding the police as we move towards abolition of the police, ultimately, um, over the years to come, and invest in a new um and a new model a new future a new vision for how we do safety so that's really the moment here um and i i really appreciate you lifting up the importance of activism um and not just activism but intentional organizing um that folks have put into intentional strategy that community members have been building for decades um to get to uh, get us to this point What's your take on Nancy Pelosi's comments? I know we've we've covered them. We covered them on the show, but they were particularly, in my view, out of touch. And and um, seemingly she had time to prepare for this. And yet she thanked George Floyd for the viewers that don't remember for sacrificing his life so that we could he could get justice for his murder. I mean, that to me, that signals that in her mind, she sees this conviction of Chauvin as something larger akin to legislative uh, action than it actually is, in addition to just the, I think, completely tone-deaf way to describe the murder of a man. Yeah, and, you know, she wasn't alone in that. I mean, Jacob Frey, I think, made a very similar statement after the verdict, saying, in effect, uh, well, you know, the city's better off for George Floyd having died because now we understand how unjust things are and there's been this moment of justice. Um Look, I mean, I think that this is indicative of a, a kind of broader mentality within the Democratic Party and amongst a lot of Democratic voters, where the victories that are important are the symbolic ones, right? Like, even if there are systems of inequity um, that everybody kind of understands and, and knows are unjust, you can have these moments of symbolic resonance that ought to mean as much 
as a real policy victory. I think you see this um, on issues beyond policing and, and criminal justice issues. I, I think this is just sort of a general approach to politics that, um, you know, it has, has really kind of deepened over the last decade or so, or at least since the you know Obama administration began in 2009, since Obama's election in 2008. There's just been sort of attention to the symbolism of politics. There's always been symbolism within politics, but I think you have now a kind of way of thinking about politics in the Democratic Party where the symbols are most of what's there, you know? Um, and that view of politics sits in real tension with obviously a rising crop of progressives, a rising left that is, is pushing uh, the president now on on substantive policy issues and, and asking for meaningful concessions and not just these kinds of fables where the death of one man can stand in uh, in place of, you know, broader reforms. And, you know, it's important to say that this isn't just, you know, this isn't just a, a statement that was kind of sucky and bad. I mean, you've had people, Axios reported, I think yesterday, that the verdict has convinced some Democrats on the Hill that they don't need to push as hard on criminal justice reform because people are happy now. People have seen justice done in this way. And so the pressure on them to actually turn to legislation, uh, as Biden kind of promised during the campaign he would do, that pressure has been lessened by the verdict. So it's it's more than just, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Jacob Frey and these people made a weird, bizarre statement. I think that this kind of symbolic politics has real world consequences because it shapes the kinds of policies they're being uh, proposed, if 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 any policies at all, right? It shapes actual, concrete politics. In the wake of George Floyd's killing, and and what what do you see that tension between what is happening with many people who still see this is a systemic problem, and this, I guess, um, hope or excuse or whatever by the 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 Democratic Party, who certainly rode a lot of that into office and their sense that, okay, we're done now. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like what's that tension? Where do you anticipate that tension sort of expressing itself? Well, I don't think the activist community is going to sort of let things go and ease up now in part because the police are going to keep killing people. I mean, immediately after the verdict, we were, we heard about this case of the police shooting and killing uh, a teenage girl, you know, and that got headlines that, 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 sort of tainted whatever happiness people felt about the, the Chauvin verdict. So I know I, I think that the activist energy is going to sustain itself just because these, again, like nothing has been done to systematically reform policing in this country. And we're going to continue to see abuses and people are going to continue hearing about them. Um, but, you know, I think that in the interim, for the reasons I just kind of described on the Hill, at least, um, and within the Biden administration, it does seem like people are taking the Chauvin verdict as a reason to sort of pull back. Um, so, you know, I, it, it's hard to say much more than the activist community is going to continue to be as serious as they've been from the get-go on these issues, and they're not going to let a temporary victory sort of dissuade them. Um, but in terms of concrete political action happening on the national level, uh, I think the Democrats in power are going to use this as a sign uh, that they should sort of pull back on an issue that they're already kind of wavering on. I mean, we remember the defund the police debate uh, during the election. Oh, you know, progressives shouldn't have come out and made all of these systemic critiques of policing. Uh, the Democratic Party was already kind of looking for excuses <laughs> to, to step back from this because they think it's politically, you know, it's a political uh, 
bomb for them and and they think they do bad politically um on this issue so you know i i don't really have a crystal ball just to sort of say much more than the police are going to keep telling people um the police are going to continue to abuse people in, in ways that uh, don't make it to national headlines in ways that often aren't even necessarily violent but you know all communities across this country uh have policing shape their lives in all kinds of deep ways that 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 you know, don't necessarily always translate into somebody being shot, but they're still repressive and oppressive and, and still hurt disadvantaged and uh, impoverished people in, in cities like the city I live in, in Baltimore. Um, so all of that is going to continue um, until we, we start reforming the system in, in a more serious way. Um, I don't know that there is a national, I don't know that there's will on the national level to do something, but certainly local activists have already won a set of victories as a consequence of the protests that happened last year. And I think that those victories will probably, probably continue. No one can rationally celebrate in a case like this. George Floyd is still dead. The court system can only do so much to give justice to his memory but at least they did what they could in this case. We're not guaranteed that they'll do it again. The trial of the three other officers involved in this incident will come up in June, and we can only hope that this at least sets a new direction. We can't say much more that, than that in this case, the dark wall of injustice has been cracked. But it's going to take a lot more hammer blows for that wall to be broken. I'm relatively certain that all of you who listen to my sermons will have spent some time listening to some of the evidence during the trial. You saw a large black man with his hands handcuffed behind his back, with his face down in the pavement, with Chauvin's knee on his neck as he pleaded for his life telling him, I can't breathe, and finally even calling out for his deceased mother to help him. But folks, I want to I take you back 11 months to May 25th of last year, before the video went viral, before the police officers involved were fired under public pressure, and before Derek Chauvin was charged. The day after Chauvin had murdered George Floyd in the street, the Minneapolis Police Department released this statement. And I'm going to ask you to give me two minutes to read it aloud because I think we need to hear the whole thing. Press release from the Minneapolis Police Department, May 26, 2020. On Monday evening, shortly after 8 p.m., Officers from the Minneapolis Police Department responded to the 3700 block of Chicago Avenue South on a report of a forgery in progress. Officers were advised that the suspect was sitting on top of a blue car and appeared to be under the influence. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his 40s, in his car, he was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs 
and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to the Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later. At no time were weapons of any type used by anyone involved in this incident. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension has been called in to investigate this incident at the request of the Minneapolis Police Department. No officers were injured in this incident. Body-worn cameras were on and activated during this incident. The Minneapolis police gave themselves several hours to concoct an account of the murder of George Floyd that sounded like there's nothing to see here. They made it sound like they were, they were almost sympathetic, that, that, that this was just so unfortunate, that he was just having a medical incident when they were trying to question him. We know that George Floyd had been dead for the last five minutes that Chauvin was kneeling on his neck. But the police in their official press release said that the police intervened, called an ambulance, sent him to the hospital, and later he died at the hospital. Chauvin was found guilty of murder, but there were four officers involved in the incident. There was a dispatcher who was watching on video there were other members of the police force who were aware of this while it was happening, and when it was all over, their official officers wrote this piece of fiction to try to convince the public that these helpful officers had noticed with deep concern that he was having a medical incident, and they acted to save his life, but sadly, he died in spite of their best efforts. So folks, what have we learned from this incident? We're having a live event. Best of the left, myself. I'm partnering with our good friend, Dr. Roger Ray, who you hear give his uh, progressive faith sermons from time to time on this show. We're holding a progressive colloquy. It's happening May 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern, the one true time zone. Everyone else can do the math. Even Roger, he'll be calling in from Missouri. So the breakdown, as we imagine it, subject to change, is that Roger and I will be having a featured discussion. Imagine us being on stage. And we're going to be talking about various aspects of community and what that means. Then we're going to open it up for question and answer. People are going to be able to metaphorically stand up from the audience and ask their question in front of the group or send in their questions via, you know, a little text chat. And then completely optional to everyone in the audience. You don't have to take part, but what we think will be fun breakout groups for small group discussion. And we're able to do this because I found this platform that is trying to duplicate the experience of attending a sort of ballroom event where first you watch speakers on a stage, 
but you also are given time to talk with other people at your table, but, you know, a limited number, you know, six, eight people, something like that around a table. Because the problem with meetings on Zoom that exceed about a half a dozen people is that it's too big of a group for everyone to meaningfully participate. And I think that this is going to solve that problem. You can do not just the table discussions, there's even an opportunity to do one-on-one conversations, like speed networking, if you like. Again, totally optional. So you can sit at a metaphorical table and chat with a small group of literal humans. You can metaphorically get up and find a new table, if you like. You could meet someone who you want to talk with longer and metaphorically get up together and go find a private table to continue your discussion, if you like. The options are really much more robust than anything I've seen like this before. So uh, we're thinking that after our talk and the Q&As, Roger and I are going to metaphorically walk around the room and join tables so that we can talk with as many people as possible, but in small group settings. It's an absolute experiment, but we think it's going to be a lot of fun because, first and foremost, we can promise that you will definitely not end up in a video chat with two dozen people, only three of whom are talking over the din of background noise, a description, by the way, that defines my personal nightmare. Humans are made to connect among small groups, so only when I found that that might be possible in the virtual world of the internet did I think it was worth giving this a try. So again, that's May 10th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Everyone else do your math. A link for details is in the show notes or go to bestofleft.com slash live where you can register right now entirely for free to be reminded when the event is actually happening. Just to lay down the basics here legally, the point here is that the Fourth Amendment is what protects us against violence by the cops or by the state in general, I guess. And it includes this idea of reasonableness. Explain the Fourth Amendment like 101. Fourth Amendment says that the state cannot do unreasonable search and seizure. Now, obviously, the founding fathers did not define what unreasonable meant because the founding fathers were some unreasonable white men, right? Like they, they had some <laughs> the first place, right? They had some beliefs that would be canceled in this culture. Let's just put it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that that phrase "unreasonable search and seizure" was interpreted has been interpreted for most of American history is a reasonable man on the street standard. I should add, it is always a man. It has always been a white man, but it is a reasonable white man. What would they do? How would they think? How would they react? That is the standard for unreasonable search and seizure. Over time, the courts have increasingly interpreted that what what a reasonable person would expect from the police is, to my mind, quite different than anything that approaches reason, right? Like, already we're in a world where the police can can search you and seize you from patting down your body to forcing you to take a breath. Like, there, there are all kinds of things that the police can do already um, that I think question the reasonable man standard. And and the seize part is the violence part, right? Like, the, is that 
what I'm to understand, like you, they can't come and beat me up under the fourth amendment. Cause that's unreasonable seizure. Yeah. So seizure is, is what we call bullets. Now, I guess we've determined that, you know, shooting you, beating you up, uh, physically assaulting you. We've determined that that is a kind of seizure, mm-hmm. which I, I guess it is. If we're going to use that archaic language, sure. Um, there are occasionally Kai and I'm not, I, I wouldn't lie to you. There are occasionally, and there was one argument from the Supreme Court this term, cases where the cops argue that shooting people is not seizing them. There was a New Mexico lady that uh, tried to get away in her car. Um, they shot her in the back, but she was able to drive away. And they said that because she was able to drive away, that proves that shooting her three times in the back wasn't a seizure. Um, the cops lost, but they tried it. <laughs> well, I'm mean, okay. So Supreme Court that you bring us to the Supreme Court. So there's this, we got the fourth amendment. It says we're protected against this unreasonable seizure, which may or may not include bullets. Uh, and, but along <laughs> comes 1989 in a case called Graham v. Connor, which the Chauvin defense team has been citing repeatedly. You point out. And this case is now foundational in deciding when and how cops get to hurt people. So let's walk through the history of that case. Who was Graham and what happened to him that was being litigated? DeThorne Graham was a diabetic. This is uh, happened in the mid-80s. He went into a, a store to get some orange juice. He was having an issue. Um, he went into the store. He immediately determined that the line was too long for him to deal with it. I'm sure many New Yorkers have, have been in that situation. Um, he went back into his car. His friend was actually driving the car. He went back into the car. They drove off. A cop who was outside the store observed a black man walk in the store and immediately walked out and determined at that point that perhaps something suspicious had happened. Perhaps he had done some, I don't know what he would have done, but he trailed DeThorne uh, Graham's car mm-hmm. for you know, a couple blocks um, pulled him over. And at this point, you know, with, you know, the slow walk to the car, the, let me see your license, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Thorn Graham is now in full diabetic shock. So when they pull him out of the car, again, on suspicion of being in a store and then leaving, that's, that's, that's the stop for being in a store, you know, and leaving. They're saying he's resisting. He's in diabetic shock. Right. The friend, the driver is like, he, look, I have his card. I have his diabetic uh, diabetes card. I have his, just give him a drink. Just give him some orange juice. That's all we're trying to do. Cops are not listening to him. They decide Thorne is, is resisting arrest. They slam his head into the hood of the car because I don't know what the cops have about slamming heads into hoods, but like, it's like why they joined the force, it's the thing. right? Slam his head into the hood of his car. Try to get him into his car. He's, he is freaking out at this point. Break his foot. Get him down to the ground. At which point another cop actually goes to the store, which says, no, nothing happened. And they let him go. That was the seizure. That was the seizure. Uh, that was the seizure that happened to the Thorn Graham. So he sued for, you know, excessive force, violation of his rights, blah, blah, blah. Pointedly, he sued under the 14th Amendment. He said this was a racial biased stop. When it got, when the case got to the Supreme Court, and I'll save you the procedural history, when the case finally got to the Supreme Court, the conservatives on the court, led by uh, William Rehnquist, they converted his claim from a 14th Amendment, these cops were racist claim, to a Fourth Amendment, these cops uh, conducted an unreasonable search and seizure claim, right. which just, I think that's always important to remember that this case that changes the way police can use force 
wasn't even what the man asked for. Right. So just remember that. Anyway, right. um, they converted to a Fourth Amendment claim, and then they say the Supreme Court says um, unanimously. By the way, this is a, so. This decision ended up including liberals that the standard should not be what a reasonable person would do because obviously a reasonable person would not beat the crap out of a diabetic. Mm -hmm. That's can't argue that Um, the standard should not be what a reasonable person should do. It should be what a reasonable cop on the scene should do. And that changed everything, man. And why does that change everything? Explain why that's such a big difference. Because now the standard for cop violence is whether another cop would be violent, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, it's like saying, well, the standard of food is what my dog would eat. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not – that completely changes what food is now, doesn't it? Right, right. The cops now – all the cops have to say, as long as this cop stick together, right? As long as the next cop and the next cop and the next cop says, like, oh, I would have beat up the torn the gram. Oh, I would have definitely broken his foot. Oh, I would have broke two feet. Like, you know, you see how that violence kind of – it's, it's literally a situation where violence begets violence. Now, the reason why the liberals signed on, I'll, I'll give them some, you know, I'm not going to completely trash them. The reason why the liberals signed on is because before Graham v. Conner, the standard was that you had to show that the cops acted unreasonably under the reasonable man uh, standard. Um, but you also had to show that they kind of intended to harm you, right? They had, they had to have a malicious intent when they were beating the crap out of you or whatever. Um, and liberals felt like that was too high of a standard, right? Because you, you could never prove intent. Right. The cop would, I didn't mean to break his foot. It just happened when I was beating him up. Um, so the liberals thought that by moving it to a reasonable cop standard, you were actually making it easier uh, to bring uh, excessive force cases against the police. But, you know, history has shown that they've just made it harder because the cops always stick together and they always tell each other, oh, this is reasonable, this is reasonable, this is reasonable. and we can only judge they're, – they're basically saying we can only judge police action based on police action, right? right, as opposed to based on something objective. Is there a political fix to Graham v. Connor? Is, is, how do we fix Graham v. Connor then, barring a Supreme Court deciding they were wrong? You want the possible issue or you want the right answer? I want the right answer. The way to fix Graham v. Connor is through legislation. We should have a national use of force guideline promulgated by the federal government that should apply to every single police locality. And if the Supreme Court says that that is unconstitutional because of some federal is concerned, then we should pack justices on the Supreme Court until we get enough who think that it's constitutional. Period. End of story. This can We cannot live in a, in a country. We can no longer live in a country where the use of force is defined by the police and it's defined differently by the police depending on which side of a county line I happen to have a broken taillight in. Like that, that just has to stop. Now, what should that new legislative standard be? That's where you get into a lot of different, I think, arguments and concerns. You know, California made an effort to change their state uh, standards and the police unions fought it bitterly. Um, um, you know, cops argue that if you change the standard, if you if you make it so that you have to be right with 2020 hindsight, cops might hesitate on the job. And that's man, that's what I want. I want cops to hesitate before they shoot people. So my standard would be um, what I call reasonable in fact. If you think that the suspect has a gun and you shoot him, he better have a gun. Because if he doesn't, it should be automatic, strict liability, jail time for you. There's no, there's, you don't get an opportunity to be wrong, right? 
If you think he had a gun and you shoot and it's a cell phone or a wallet or a refracted, you know, gas off of a planet, then guess what? You go to jail. End of story. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. That would be my standard. That would be quite a difference. That would make cops hesitate. That would make cops hesitate before they shot me or my kids. That's what I want. That's not what cops want. So I would set the, the standard at objectively correct. Other reformers will allow for, for some leeway for cops kind of trying their best in a, in a quick and difficult situation. But whatever we do, we need to change the standard for when cops are able to deploy deadly force. There was a 17-year-old girl there who recorded on her cell phone Floyd's death. Chauvin threatened to pepper spray her if she didn't stop videoing. And you should all know you have a legal right to video record a police officer at work. But she didn't lower her phone. Say what you will about Facebook, and there's a lot of things to say about Facebook. But she posted that video on social media. It went viral. And the lies that I read to you from the Minneapolis Police Department fell apart with an eyewitness video of what actually happened. Without her courageous action, I am afraid that you and I might never have even heard of George Floyd. And had it not been for the person who videoed the execution of Walter Scott in North Charleston a few years ago when a policeman shot him in the back as he tried to run for his life. If that hadn't been videoed, we might never have heard of him. None of the police on the scene had the courage to just tell the truth about what happened. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. Because you know there's a bad apple here and there. But were 100% of the police on site that day bad apples? Can we keep using that language if it's common rather than rare? Everyone standing on the sidewalk was asking for them to stop it. The police never wavered. Undoubtedly, every one of those people had a cell phone in their pocket and they could have recorded it But it was just this teenage girl who did it. She saved George Floyd's memory, and she led all of us in a pathway towards justice. Now, when I say that she had courage, it should be said that she had to have courage in the face of a police officer who was murdering one large black man who was threatening to to use violence against her. She had courage then, but then she also testified in court Uh, during the trial. And what I want you to understand now is that her life is at risk, which is why I'm not going to show you a picture of her and why I'm not going to say her name. And I wish that the news media would show her the same deference. She deserves our praise and adoration, but she doesn't deserve to have a target drawn on her, which I'm afraid the media is doing now. She had the courage to put her life on the line to speak truth to power. And we should all try to protect her from the many white supremacists 
who would now take any opportunity they could find to kill her. Harvard professor Cornell West regularly reminds us that justice is what love looks like in public. Because love is a verb. It is something that you do. You may feel love, but primarily meaningful love is not just something that you feel. Because love does involve risk. Love requires courage. To love someone means you are giving up some part of yourself. When we started this church in 2008, we took as our motto that famous quote from the Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, thou shalt not stand idly by. We cannot hope for justice if we want to remain neutral in the presence of injustice. Silence never creates justice. Silence is always interpreted as tacit support for the oppressors. The powerful will never give justice to the weak out of the goodness and generosity of their hearts. Presidents will lie, the police will lie, and though I hate to say it, denominations, bishops, popes, and pastors will lie to make their worst crimes seem either benign or unavoidable. I want to tell you, if you stand idly by, you are a part of the propaganda that insists that no one is responsible. Remember how the police said this. The police were just questioning him about a counterfeit bill when they noticed that he was having a medical problem. What we have learned when we compare what we know about how George Floyd did die with what the police told us in May is that you cannot believe what the police say. It seems unavoidable to me that we all have to assume a certain posture of questioning authority. We've just heard clips today starting with the Brian Lehrer Show announcing the guilty verdict along with comments from the judge and Attorney General Keith Ellison. Criminal Injustice did an analysis of the case. Democracy Now! spoke with an activist about justice and the way forward. The Majority Report discussed the response from a large contingent of the Democratic Party. Roger Ray, in two parts from one of his Progressive Faith sermons, explained some of what we should have learned from the Chauvin case from crime to verdict, and the United States of Anxiety explained the interpretation of the Fourth Amendment that gives cops cover and the reform we need to implement. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips including another from the United States of Anxiety discussing the culture of policing that helps prevent reform, and the takeaway looked at the federal investigation investigations of multiple cities' police departments and the need for national regulation. For non-members, those bonus clips are going to be linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered 
seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Andy calling from New Orleans with a quick rant on your behalf directed to my fellow listeners. Fellow listeners, I subscribe to about 50 podcasts and not all of them are active and not all of them are politics, but I know that I know about most of them because of best of the left, either from firsthand exposure or secondary contact from the new pods that uh, best of the left got me listening to. I support a handful of podcasts on Patreon, and because of the great service you have done for my continuing political education, you get about 20 of the 50 bucks a month I send to folks. I recently got a, uh, a new phone, and I, in the process of migrating my podcast to the new device, I saw a disturbing pattern. Newer and smaller podcasts out there are getting way more patrons than you do. Uh, let me give you some numbers. Best of the Left has about 700 patrons. Red Media, which is formerly the Red Nation podcast talking about indigenous history, culture, and politics, has about 1,500 as does the Majority Report. Rev Left Radio, which is great for socialist history and analysis, has 1,600. The Dig, which is an arm of Jackman Radio, has 1,700. The Antifada, which is Jamie from the Majority Report and her commie pals, have 2,100. And our favorite Marxist economist, Richard Wolff, has 2,600. So uh, to be honest, Best of the Left is one of the more conservative pods in my stable. And this is the reason for my concern. We all know about the negative effect of primaries in state Republican districts. The candidates have to go after the voters who are farther to the right, and we end up with ding-dongs like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jim Jordan. Well, this quick Patreon snapshot of mine shows a similar effect on our side. The farther left voices are the ones getting the love from their listeners. Best of the Left has been up and running for, like, what, 14 years? There are so many more people out there that have been touched by Best of the Left, yet an embarrassingly small number of people support it. Well, I want to take this time to embarrass you on Jay's behalf because he's too nice to do it himself. If you're having ramen noodles and hot dogs for dinner for the third time this week, I'm not talking to you. But if you're safe, warm, fed, and sleeping through the night because you're doing okay, then give the man a buck a month for crying out loud. Heck, maybe even throw in some of that stimmy money from Big Daddy Biden to get yourself right with your obligations. I think that we can all agree that best of the left is a labor of love for Jay and the gang. But if they ever get to the point where love doesn't do it anymore and they just all decide that they would rather eat, then all of our lives are going to be worse off when they shut it down. We should all be out organizing for a better world, building stronger communities for the troubles here and those that are coming, and exposing ourselves to the best voices on the left for inspiration for our work. Overwhelmed by it all? That's okay, but you can't let yourself be incapacitated by it. Taking small steps can get you moving in the right direction. For example, go to patreon.com and support Best of the Left for a buck a month, then see what you can do next. So be it. See to it. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. In response to the voicemail we got today, I thought, sure, let's talk about the business of progressive media for a, a little bit. It is something that I think is interesting to to understand so this isn't just navel gazing and explaining what this show needs but to to sort of scratch beneath the surface of what the caller uh, was beginning to expose i think might be interesting for more people to hear so I, I think there are two major things happening that 
the listeners de- describing with the far left, the sort of Marxist, communist, uh, you know, explicitly socialist wing of progressive media and podcasts and YouTube. There's that that's part of the issue. And then there is a, a fundamental divide between podcasts and YouTube shows. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about both. The first is the power of the niche. So every Marxist, I'm obviously overgeneralizing, listens to about the same 20 podcasts or YouTube shows, you know, 20, 50, whatever the actual number is, established, long-running shows, you know, a few dozen, which is great. I'm, I'm glad they exist. I'm a fan of many of them. But basically, if you are looking for that kind of content, the number of places you can go is relatively limited. Whereas you compare to, if you're trying to reach a broader audience, the math works out a little differently. And you you would think that, well, if you're reaching a larger audience, then you'll get a larger audience and more people will will support you and you should be able to make more money by going after a larger audience. And it, it just doesn't quite work out that way necessarily, with exceptions that I'll get to. But I think the way it's working out is with a smaller pie, meaning the total number of possible listeners, talking about the group of people in the country or around the world looking for explicitly socialist, communist, Marxist-type content, that pool of people is relatively small. But because the number of shows that they can find to consume are also incredibly small, then that pie gets divided into a lot fewer pieces. And so each show can actually garner more supporters per show than a show that is reaching a broader audience. So again, good for them. I'm glad that they're getting lots of support. That's kind of how it's supposed to work. I am doing something a little bit different. You know, I'm trying to be a bridge that converts people into thinking more progressively. So for those who are not very progressive thinking, they're sort of middle of the road, or they they think that they're progressive, or but then listen to this show and realize they're not, <laughs> which has happened to you know a, a good number of people. You know, I'm trying to convert MSNBC watchers into Democracy Now watchers, or Democracy Now watchers into Richard Wolf watchers, and so on. And there is a huge potential audience for that kind of content. But there's also a huge number of shows that appeal to that group. And so a large part of that group just end up listening to Pod Save America because they heard about it and stop their search. You know, they watch MSNBC and they have sort of a middle of the road podcast and they think, okay, I'm, I'm getting the news. So in terms of the pie and how it gets divided, I might be appealing to a larger pie, but I'm getting a smaller slice. So that that's kind of how that works out. But the other incredibly major, major, major aspect of this is the podcast versus YouTube divide, which brings me to the YouTube algorithm. And I just wanted to touch on this because like, this is the most interesting aspect of it because we actually talk about the YouTube algorithm not to mention Facebook algorithms and all the algorithms that sort of run the media, social media, but also media media these days, because a lot of media happens on YouTube. 
And we've talked about it in how dangerous it can be, how it can lead people down dark paths, and so on. But there is a flip side of that. And I haven't like done the math to actually figure out in dollars and cents how much it's worth. But the YouTube algorithm, having a show on YouTube, is worth thousands of dollars of marketing budget per month. Just putting your show on YouTube and having the algorithm do your marketing for you is a boost of thousands of dollars a month that I would have to spend to get a, a an equivalent benefit from not being on YouTube. And you may say, well, okay, well, then why don't you put the show on YouTube? And hopefully it's obvious to some degree, Best of Left doesn't translate that well to YouTube for a variety of reasons, and we'll just leave it at that for now. So this show doesn't translate to YouTube, we're not on YouTube, and therefore we, we are effectively losing out on thousands of dollars a month that could be spent on marketing. And one of the best natural experiments that I know of is to compare the David Pakman show and Best of the Left, because we started our shows at very similar times. I met David when he got in touch with me, cold email in 2010, I think, emailed me, said, hey, I sort of randomly found your show. I realized we're of similar age and we're doing sort of similar work. We should know each other and cross promote or, you know, do something along those lines. And so he was just getting started. I was just getting started. Our, our shows were of very similar sizes. And David got his show on YouTube and I didn't. And now he has 1.3 million subscribers on YouTube. And the size of our podcast audience is larger, but not that much larger than it was 10 years ago. Which sort of surprised me. I mean, I, I thought word of mouth and just sort of natural growth would take over. But instead of doing actual marketing, I just sort of hoped that marketing would take care of itself, which it doesn't. And I will admit that David is better at marketing than I am. But really, it's the YouTube algorithm. Having that in your corner doing your marketing for you is enormous nearly incalculable how beneficial that is. And so you can see how that worked out. Over the course of 10 years, the possibility for growth can be geometric as opposed to incredibly incremental. So there's a couple of lessons I could take from that. Uh, the, the first is, I will just uh, toss out there that if you would like to bankroll a marketing campaign, I know exactly how I could spend five to $10,000 a month and boost our listenership to a very respectable level. Alternately, we are experimenting with some new ideas. They're not ready to be announced, but I sort of know where the problems are and I know what could potentially be done to position ourselves a little bit better. And so I am working in that direction, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, we have stretched our budget pretty much to the max, and all of this is to say that it's still a great time to become a member. We are not just uh, adding new membership dollars to our giant pile of cash or anything like that. It's all being sort of invested back into the show right now as we try to do 
new and interesting things that hopefully take us to the next level and so on. Uh, none of it is going to be the equivalent of a nice fat marketing budget, but you take my point anyway. And as a side note, you know, the listener mentioned Patreon. You don't have to use Patreon. We also have our own system that's super simple and straightforward that you can use if you prefer that style. So as always, thanks in advance for your support. Huge thanks to Andy for the very kind call and, and you know, taking the time to do that. That's really appreciated. If you would like to sign up and support us, you can do that at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and so on. And of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships, again, at bestofleft.com support. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.